0: there is like not enough money that you could pay me in the world to have me go back and found a company. Like I, honestly, it is just, I recognize how unbelievably gut-wrenching that is. And I want to earn the right to sit at the table with people who are doing that.
1: Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast brought to you by JVM, a search firm that places executives and future leaders into high growth startups and scale ups. We often get asked to feature more VC investors on the podcast, whether it's to help founders improve how they approach and pitch to VCs, or for aspiring VCs that want to know how they can become an investor. It's a notoriously hard industry to get into, and there is always a mystique and plenty of myths that go around about VCs. So we've decided to bust some of those myths and shine a light on some of the very best VCs in Europe through a special feature series. Over the next three weeks, we'll be featuring brilliant VC partners who will share their insights and mentorship on a range of topics, from what it's like to run a fund, to the state of the European tech scene, what industries they're currently investing in, and advice for founders during the current economic downturn. We'll also be talking about DE&I in an industry that has a reputation for not being particularly diverse. First up, we have the brilliant Leila Zenya, founding general partner of Kindred Capital. I'm a huge fan of Layla and the Kindred team. They've built a unique VC model and have an incredible portfolio of companies that they've invested in, from Farewell to the Unicorn Paddle and many more hyper-growth companies. In today's episode, Layla and I discuss how she made the switch from operator to VC and how the equitable venture model is changing the way VCs work in Europe. She also shares some brilliant advice for working parents and gives some great tips for any founders looking to pitch to Kindred. I know you'll learn so much from this episode, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy the upcoming 40 minutes with the brilliant Leila Zetka. Leila, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. It's lovely to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted.
1: Well, we always like to start with some quickfire questions to warm you up. So if you don't mind, please finish these sentences after me. My first job was?
0: My first job in terms of just making any money was literally selling items in my room to my sister for very high prices. My first actual job was I was an equity analyst or on the sort of equity analysis team at Deutsche Bank before I knew what any of those words meant and how to be effective in any way. But that was my first ever.
1: (laughs) Very, very honest of you. And I love the early uh, hustler within selling stuff at higher prices to your siblings. Uh, I love that. Big fan. Always be closing. Oh, yeah. Always be closing. ABC, definitely. My first ever investment was?
0: My first investment was into a company which is now a very successful company called Matterport. I had the opportunity through a friend who knew the founder and basically just sold me on it. And I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. That was a great idea. The not great idea was that I sold secondaries in one of their rounds. I think it was their series B or C. I made six times my money, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant at the time. This is like 12 years ago, but I definitely should have held on and would have made uh, you know many, many multiples. But yeah, a bit of beginner's luck
1: for portfolio. Great example. And the deal I'm most proud of is...
0: I mean that's an impossible one. That's like the you know choose your favorite child kind of thing. But we just this morning had a board meeting with with one of our companies. It's, it's just very top of mind for me, and and it's a company I'm hugely proud of, and uh, a founder I'm very very proud of, which is a company called Gaia, and Gaia is cre- trying to create more financial access for reproductive therapies, and they're starting an IVF, which is you know a hugely costly undertaking, you know emotionally costly, but also financially costly. And they are trying to make that far more available to many more people and have the world's first personalized insurance product for IVF. So if you don't have success, then you don't have capital outlay. So yeah, really proud of that founder. He's, you know, has been on his own journey of IVF himself and, you know, has deep empathy for the problem he's solving. And I think fundamentally, it's a a company that will make the world fundamentally better as a result of their success, which is always really exciting.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And my sister went to IVF and, and various friends as well. And it's, uh, yeah, it sounds like a company that's really needed in the world. So that's an amazing example. I wish I'd have invested in.
0: Well, many companies, of course. I think one company that I'm hugely intrigued by on a number of different levels, one of which clearly being the return profile you would have put is WhatsApp. The reason being they they basically sold for, you know, almost $20 billion and there are 55 people in the company so i think the idea of being able to build just extraordinarily transformative technology with a very small team is is incredible but i think the thing that makes it you know even more exciting from that perspective now is really how the founders then reacted sort of post acquisition you know it's been quite public but obviously one of the founders has since left and has been very vocal actually against social media and i think that's just an incredibly brave thing to do i think really in hyper intelligent hyper ambitious people who can change their mind quite publicly about maybe unintended consequences or second and third order consequences, I think is just hugely high integrity. And, you know, I think the fact that you know, he's come out very publicly with something that he has himself built and created in the world and just being really thoughtful about what its impact is. I would love to have the opportunity to sit down and, and know him better and, you know, have worked with founders that have that kind of intellectual honesty. So for a number of reasons.
1: Yeah, it's such a great answer. And, uh, yeah you often get a lot of people that maybe in the back of their minds realize they've created a monster but would never admit it in public so it takes a lot of integrity and honesty to and self awareness to to share that that's a really good answer the hardest thing about being a vc is
0: I think there's two things that probably tie for the hardest thing as far as I'm concerned one is that you're just saying no all the time you know you're really you're saying no kind of 99% of the time and you know, we try and actually take the time to provide that feedback and tell founders actually why we're making that decision as opposed to the it's not a fit that a lot of VCs kind of give out and that we were recipients of when we were raising money for our businesses. But it takes a huge amount of time. Often founders will have very different views on those things when you're specific about them. So they'll want like second and third calls to sort of talk through those things. And I think it's the right thing to do, but it's, you're spending the most valuable resource you have, which is your time. And it's, it's always delivering a tough message where you're not totally aligned with that founder's thought process. So I think that that's hard, but something we try and do, you know, again, with integrity, I think it's it's just so, so important. And then I think the hard thing for me personally in being a general partner in a venture fund is that the feedback loops of, are you any good at this job are really long and you get lots of false positives and negatives along the way. So I had thought, because I was a founder previously, as many of us at Kindred have been, and I thought, well, you know, those jagged edges of up and down, you know, it's just relentless. And it is so, you know, I have a stomach ulcer from, from building my last company. And I was like, this is great because we'll have this portfolio. So we'll have 30 of them in a fund and that will just like balance out all the highs and lows. And I think what I found is like, I just have 30 times now the the ups and downs because I really like really alongside my founders and that's good and bad. I think it means we invest with a lot of empathy and, and we're really in with them. But, you know, also, I think you've got to manage kind of your own psychology as an investor and hopefully your longevity of doing it for many decades. So I think that's the other
1: hard thing. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. And I think I've heard amazing things about Kindred and how you are with founders. And I think it's so important to show that empathy for them even when it's delivering bad news. And uh, I, I think that really enamors you to the wider ecosystem. I also feel as a headhunter, the worst bit of my job is saying no to a lot of people and, and giving bad news or you know, telling people they haven't got a job. Uh, so as, as a yes man, I find that particularly difficult because I want to please everyone. So, uh, yeah, I could definitely relate. Finally, Leila, can you share something from your CV or background that we wouldn't know from the CV? So it's something that isn't obvious that might have been a failure or a setback, but one that you've learned a lot from.
0: Yeah, I think my first role out of my business school, out of my MBA, it was a role that I joined as the general manager of a startup and it grew really quickly. I was like in the first maybe ten or fifteen hires, and then within six months, we were sixty or seventy people and like everything was all up and to the right. We raised you know a big round from big v c s that will not be named, but that everyone will know and I just felt kind of ethically misaligned with um with the c e o and I reflected back on actually a line from a guy named Clay Christensen, who has written many books and he was a professor. He's recently passed, but he was a professor at Harvard Business School and just like a tremendous individual, really incredible and really inspirational. And he had said, Do the right thing 100% of the time, not 99% of the time, because the minute you make that 1%, Exception, and there was lots of good reasons to make the exception. Like I wasn't the CEO, I wasn't making those decisions. I was actually voicing my concerns. Whatever, stay in a company for at least a year after you graduate, and you look bad on your CV if you leave too soon. But the minute you make an exception, every time something confronts your value system or where you draw that ethical line, you'll have to see if like that's an exception to the rule moment again. And it basically is just a time sink, um, and and sort of takes you down a, a really slippery slope. And so yeah, I I did what was my right thing, right, which will be different for everyone, but the minute something sort of went beyond what I thought was, you know, my line, I left and I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do next and I had no job lined up and I thought it was like a mark of shame and I'd been recruited into the company by a big name venture capitalist and what were they going to think of me and and I was abandoning ship and all, all that kind of stuff. So I was really really worried about doing that, but is probably one of the most important things that I've done in my career because you know now there there aren't those exceptions to the rule if something you know crosses an ethical border for me I know exactly what to do and I think that's really that's really comforting in a space that's so dynamic and ever changing that you have that constant within you that true north
1: Definitely. I have huge respect for that. And I think it's great to set that standard for the company and the founders that you work with as well. Uh, I think anyone hearing that will really respect it. Thank you so much, Layla. I feel like we've already covered some really interesting ground in those intro questions, but we've got to talk about your story. So you've had a really varied career from consulting, you've been a, an operator and a founder, you're now a VC. So can you tell our listeners, maybe give them a little whistle-stop tour of, of your CV? And how did you manage to transition between each of those different roles?
0: Yeah, I think I have always been really interested in working on problems that are important to me and working on them specifically with people who I find, you know, inspiring. And it's it's always about the people for me. It kind of has always been about the people for me. And when I was graduating from my undergrad, there was this skit I remember at graduation day Where there were, you know, a few of them standing up on a stage and one of them, so I graduated in two thousand and five, so now like seventeen years ago. And they said, So, so fellow Yaley, you know, what are you gonna do when you graduate? And the guy was like, I'm doing eye banking in New York. He's like, That's great. And he turned to the next guy and said, I'm doing eye banking in New York. And then he turned to the third guy and he was like, I'm doing AIDS research in Africa. And there's this like awkward pause and he goes, I'm just kidding, I'm doing eye banking in New York. You know, it was like that was the only thing that people were doing. And it was like banking or consulting. I had done, as I said, my first job. I, you know, done some work in investment banks, and um, I was an intern at Lazard. And I, you know, I remember thinking that was they're really intelligent people, but they were applying their intelligence to like this very narrow scope and focus, and they have to do it 23 hours of a 24 hour day, so it left very little time for sort of what what else might be in your life that makes you this broad, rich person. So I decided very creatively that consulting was going to be the better choice for me. But again, was sort of lucky enough to get offers at, at you know, Bain, BCG and McKinsey. And those were like the three that I wanted to potentially go and work with. And I just thought from a Bain perspective, it was all about the people. Like they just really focused on like the work hard, play hard mentality. And the breadth of the people that they hired were people who had like English literature backgrounds and history backgrounds and mathematics backgrounds and so on. So I was just really inspired by the people, frankly, and I loved it. Like I had an amazing few years there. I left to do what they call an externship where you go and actually work inside a company as opposed to kind of give the polished uh, presentation deck of what you think they should do. You actually do it. And I came to the UK and I worked with Innocent Drinks when they were, you know, really very small. Uh, it was 2007 and, you know, they were sort of proving that small could be big in the smoothie market, right? Yeah. And I just completely caught the startup bug there. And it it's not, you know, cutting edge technology. It's, it's blended fruit but again it was about the people it was about their attitude and their value system and i just couldn't fathom going back into a large organization after that and have gone smaller and smaller in terms of the types of companies i've worked with and for ever since then in all different parts of the world from argentina to the us and and, and now in in europe so i think the thread is is great people i feel very blessed to have found you know what i feel like is my calling at kindred i mean i think that's a very loaded word and is probably more unhelpful than helpful for most people because uh, you think that you know you need to find that and you need to find it really early. And I didn't until I accidentally founded Kindred, you know, now almost seven years ago. But I think it's one of those things that sort of you know it when you when you see it and when you feel it. And basically, the venture business, especially as early as we invest, is a people business. That that's all I do. Like our product, people, our you know customers, our people. What we do is we have people judgment more than business judgment, and then we try and support those people. And so, I think for me, there's, it, I'd be very hard pressed to find a, another job that would suit me as well as this one.
1: Amazing. No, thank you so much. Well, I, I think it it begs the question then, sort of, how do you end up doing investing? Clearly, you are a people person, and you know, being able to do the work that a VC does is is very people centric. But can you tell us how you ended up, sort of, ultimately starting the firm, and um, how did you find it? you know, adapting from the previous careers to being a VC?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I was, I spent about 10 years on the operating side in very early stage companies and, you know, joining, as I said, an early stage company or even co-founding a an early stage company. And, you know, through those experiences, it was really about finding, you know, a pain point and a problem that you really, really cared about working on with a group of people who you were really inspired by. Like that was the makeup of these operating roles that I had. And it spanned different sectors and as I said, different geographies, but that was fundamentally what it was about. And my husband actually got relocated to London in 2014. Our company had just closed a Series B and like all startup journeys was a crazy ride of up and down and we're going to be huge and then we're going to have to lay off all our staff and then we're going to be huge again. So the idea that we had just closed our biggest round and we could have this like, you know, amazing journey of, of deploying it and building value was so exciting that I wanted to stay with the company and the company was in Silicon Valley. And so I tried to commute back and forth between London and Silicon Valley for a while, which was not a commute I would recommend to anyone. So it became quite clear, you know, after six months or so that I would need to figure out what was next for me based here in the UK. And I really, frankly, at the beginning, thought I wanted to start another company or maybe join an early stage company. And I I just, the first step was to talk to as many founders as I could and as many people in the startup ecosystem and just understand what was interesting and what wasn't and who I might want to partner with and who I might want to co-found something with. And what I realized in those discussions was that founders in Europe were just so underserved relative to what I had experienced raising money for my business in the heart of Silicon Valley. Like the kinds of capital providers that were at the time very active were mainly financial firms. I mean, the statistic the year we set up was that 95% of the capital invested into early stage tech in Europe is pure financial capital like less than 5% has any founding experience in the partnership. Now that number is 8%, right? It's like moving in the right direction of like more founding and operating DNA in venture partnerships, but you know the the equivalent statistic in the US is that 60% have founding and operating experience. And so it's just a radically different sphere in terms of how they think about investing with a sense of empathy, like the deep awe that is required to say like you are putting a hundred percent of your earning potential and your time and your reputation and your everything into this one thing. And like, this is this extraordinary sacrifice in many ways that you're, you're making. And I think to invest with that kind of backdrop that you have been there and done that and felt that visceral pain is unique. And so that kind of got me thinking that I wanted to start another company. Yes. But I really just wanted it to be a venture fund that thought about their product very differently than what I saw was available to founders who I thought were underserved. And I think that's really how we've thought about you know, building Kindred from day zero is I had the opportunity to... And I still pinch myself every day that I, I have this opportunity to build with the people that I get to build with. But that's where it starts. It's like these just ridiculously phenomenal people where you get to be the idiot in the room amongst them who come together to try and solve this common problem with a common value system so people happened to be available coming out of big institutional funds or you know people who i had had known and built relationships with for for years who thought like yeah this is something i want to dedicate my next few decades to so that was very rare and then we basically have been building and breaking ever since you know we've been trying to break the model innovate on the model find different ways of doing things you know learn from what works and what doesn't and constantly reinvent ourselves and it feels very much like we're building another business in that way we just get the privilege to work with lots of businesses along the way.
1: love that. And I, I want to come on to talk about the the uniqueness of the Kindred model shortly. But just touching upon the operator piece, which we've seen a, a number of VCs start to hire more operators in, which we think is, is it just makes a lot of sense, you know, for when investing in, in startups and working with founders. Why do you think that more operators should work in VC? Because you, you've clearly made that transition really successful and it's worked very well for Kindred.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's not always the case either. Like I've definitely spoken to operators who have come onto the investment side and just been like really frustrated, you know, because you have to recognize that these are not your businesses. This is not your business to run, and you can get really carried away in meetings sometimes where you're like, "Ooh!" And then you could do this, and then you could do that, and those are actually the ones to be a little bit wary of because if you're kind of coming up with a lot of ideas, you know, that's not scalable. You're not going to be in the room all the time, and it's not your company, frankly. So the founder of that business or the founders in that business are the ones and you are playing a support role. Like this is a a number two at best. And it's probably like a number, you know, 20 or 200, right? Like you are there to support them and kind of getting to to the best decisions and and kind of the best outcome possible, but it's not your ship to run. And I think for some operators, that's really frustrating because they kind of quote unquote, know the answer. They think they know the answer and they're kind of very impatient to drive the founder to that answer. And you know, one of my partners in the firm always talks about prescription. Like we need to not be prescriptive and you need to actually be much more inquisitive rather than prescriptive. So you've got two ears and one mouth and you should use them in that proportion. So I, I think that's that's frustrating for, for some operators. I think for the operators on the investment side for whom it works really well, like myself and for my partners, there is like not enough money that you could pay me in the world to have me go back and found a company. Like I, that, honestly, it is just, I recognize how unbelievably gut-wrenching that is. And I want to earn the right to sit at the table with people who are doing that. But you know, it's not something that I want to do. So I think it kind of goes in both directions. And building a company is deeply unglamorous. You know, It's a lot of grit and it's a lot of just you know, doing what needs to get done. And I, I certainly do it in the kindred context. But I think it's, it's taken to many more extremes when you're running an operating business.
1: Totally, yeah. I think that's one of the things we really wanted to get across on the podcast is there is this glamour, you know, around the tech space and and in VC, but it's hard graft and it really isn't for everyone. And we do reference that quite a lot because we really want to make it, you know, real. Because most of the time, being a founder really sucks, <laughs> and there's a lot of really really long days and a lot of stress and huge sacrifice. But I think it's also the most rewarding possible role. and I guess in some ways you're getting to do both things by working with those people and spotting the best of the best, and then also building your own business at the same time. I think that's that's kind of a beautiful scenario. Before we talk a bit more about Kinja specifically, uh, you've worked all over the world. You know, you've grown up in, and studied in the US, and that has always been seen as the darling of the VC world. You know, the the, the Sequoias as well these huge funds that have incredible reputations. But it's safe to say the European tech scene and the UK tech scene has been blowing up in, in recent times. And there are some incredible funds, Kindred being obviously a leading light in that space. How have you found and what, what, what do you see the major differences now between the, the, the VC industry in the US and over here? And is there anything that we can learn from our side to kind of yeah, be even better?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think we talk quite a lot about ecosystems at Kindred because ecosystems can be these micro ecosystems or they could be sort of macro across continents, right? And I think what we believe makes up a very high performing ecosystem are three things, two of which are talked about all the time and the third less so. One is the talent base, one is the capital base, like everyone sort of talks about that. I think if I just take those two, I mean, talent has been on a total tear over the course of the last 10 years in in Europe. I don't have to tell you that given, you know, what what you do for your day job. But I think we're seeing so many people who have like seen it, right? They've been on these growth stage journeys. They've seen what scaling looks like. They've seen the challenges. They've seen what the growing pains are. They're spinning out their next companies or they're joining new companies. So there's just kind of diaspora of talent and the equivalent of the PayPal mafias are all kind of coming through in Europe now. And, And that's just tremendously exciting. The capital side, you referenced Sequoia, but it's like, you know, Sequoia, Lightspeed, General Catalyst, Bessemer, blah, 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 all setting up, you know, really significant operations here. There's more capital than ever before. Great. There's a third component though, which is a lot more amorphous and people aren't talking about it as much, which is, we call it this belief system. Uh, The belief system is like, they have it in spades in Silicon Valley, right? Because you can't walk a single block in the valley without hearing someone say like my MRR, or ARR, or my valuation, or I'm pitching to this person or that person. And it's like, if he can do it, I can do it. He's a normal guy. like. And I think that density that you get, which is quite monoculture. And if you spend a lot of time in the valley, you will know that it is like, can be quite boring and quite monotonous because everyone you know is doing that kind of like building a company and trying to change the world. But it's totally intoxicating. And there's nothing too big for you to dream up. And I think that's the thing in Europe that we've really been missing is that that risk appetite, like entrepreneurship used to be a euphemism for unemployment. You know, it's like, if you were really smart, you'd go, you know, be a professor at Oxford, or you'd be at Goldman, or you would be at McKinsey, or you would do these things. And I think now the really smart people are going and founding companies, or they're going and working for these rocket ship companies. And That is starting to come through in a way in which the risk appetite and the sort of dreaming big. And it's a big part, frankly, of why at Kindred, we share the economics of the whole firm. Like we share the profit with every founder, because it's like if you feel like you're a co-owner in this other founder's success and journey, you build that density in a place where you know, we're much more dispersed than we are in Silicon Valley, right? And that that makes my life a lot more fun and a lot more enjoyable. And I'm delighted to be raising my children in Europe and all of those things. But we have to recreate the density of that see it to believe it within our own portfolio. And that's what we've done.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And you referenced your sort of pioneering concept of equitable venture. Can you tell our, our listeners just a bit more about what kind of why you came up there? You've already alluded to it, but it'd be good to expand upon that a bit and talk about why founders is so excited to be involved with Kindia because of that unique model.
0: Well, I'll put it this way. If, if you come from an operating and founding background, it would be ludicrous for you to say, I'm starting a company and I have 100% of, of the equity in that company, and I'm never going to give any equity away to talent, and I, I'm never going to sell any of my company to VCs, and I expect to make this huge. You know, really good luck to you. There has never been an N of one company that has become transformative, and I just think that is the de facto mentality on the on the venture side or on the sort of any kind of private equity fund, which has like a two and twenty model, and you know that they make money predominantly on the carry on the twenty percent of the economics that's made up of the underlying portfolio's performance. And we were just like, let's treat that like we have a company and we have profit, and that's our carry. And we have an option pool. And I'm from the US, so option pools are 20%. And you know, that, that's kind of what we said, let's treat our four-person partnership as if we had a fifth equal partner. And instead of you know getting James and giving him 20% because he's our fifth equal partner, let's actually take that 20% and let's share it with all the founders that we invest in out of each fund. So if we invest in James's company and we've invested in Joe's company, and your company IPOs, well, Joe will get a check in the mail. and if Joe's company sells to Google, like you get a check in the mail. And it's why we called the firm Kindred, but it really is this community of kindred spirits that we are curating in our portfolio where everyone has a vested interest in each other's success. And to the density point that I made, like you may be that kind of right side of the crazy line founder that believes that you can build something tremendous and if we have like spent you know a thousand meetings over the course of the year to find like the eight other people or teams that we think have that same belief system and that same DNA and then we surround you with each other and we give you ownership in each other's journeys because we're taking it out of our pocket and distributing it around like that is the kind of density and belief system that i think just generates better outcomes for everyone and so yeah the 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 fundamental premise is like we are in the value creation business. This is not zero sum. We are literally creating value where there is nothing there before. And so I think the single lens by which you should make all the decisions is like, let's build the most amount of value possible, not like how we divide the pie. And I think it's been transformative in terms of helping us build a really high performing fund. And sure, we have a smaller piece of a bigger pie. And we get to share with all of our founders. And frankly, it's like the version of the world we want to live in, which is that's the privilege when you start a company, right? When you start a company or you start a firm, you build that version of the world you want to live in. You build the value system, you build the people, you build the office, you build the environment, you build everything. And like, that's the version of the world I want to live in is one that where you're you're sort of inherently more generous and where you win together. So yeah, it's great to be able to do that.
1: There's such a refreshing approach and it just makes so much sense. So uh, I love the fact that you're pioneering that. You're also really well known for being incredibly supportive of founders, and you've referenced that. And I think that obviously comes a lot from being a founder yourself historically and knowing what it feels like and, and, and the pain of, of that roller coaster at times. We're going into challenging times, there's no denying that. So, what advice are you giving to founders right now as we face, as many face their first economic downturn? And to anyone listening to this that might be, you know, feeling pretty anxious about what's ahead. What reassurance can you give them?
0: Yeah, I think there's sort of this anxiety balance sheet that you create, which has a lot to do with, you know, the things that you have control over and the things that you don't have control over. And I think in, in kind of putting that balance sheet down, like writing down what are the things that give you that anxiety and sort of putting them into these like, you know, credits and debits, you realize that actually there is a lot more that's in your control than you think and there will be things that are out of your control and so like it's just not worth spending a whole lot of time on those things because by definition you you can't really influence or move them you need to be aware of them but we really try and encourage our founders to say all right well what are the things bottom up that are in your control and i think kind of the the two main things one is if you are serving customers and you are serving them With a product that they really want that is differentiated and that's like making their lives better in some way, you are kind of adding value, you're adding utility. Like those companies survive. The macro elements of like at what valuation they raise at and like, you know, how they navigate that, like that is of course something that might be out of your control, but fundamentally you're there to like build something valuable for someone. And so we really focus people to like focus people on listening to their customers. Like what is changing for your customers in this moment in time? How can you keep your ear to the ground of what they need and just constantly orient yourself around that need? I think that's probably the most actionable thing that people can do in order to navigate through choppy waters. And I think that the second thing, which is kind of an obvious one, is just you know the more flexibility that you can have in terms of when and how you engage with the investment community the better. And so there's oftentimes things you can do with with your cost base or, you know, with your payments and your payment cycles. And you know, there's things that are just sort of prudent in terms of running a business and extending runway that we're encouraging people to do. And I think the third thing is just it is a really difficult moment. It can feel very lonely to be a founder in the best of times. And so I think, you know, we're really trying to surround those founders with one another because that peer group and that peer group in a safe enough setting where people can be kind of open and honest and vulnerable with each other about what they don't know and what they're afraid of. They're probably not going to do it with a venture investor in the room. So like remove your ego and get out of the room, curate it, pay for it. We underwrite executive coaching for every single one of our founders out of our own fees. We create these sort of founder forums or pods that are modeled after YPO, kind of how do you just have a peer group that you can go deep with. But I think support looks like some tangible things, but also like, some emotional foundational things.
1: Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I, I'm part of a founders group. There's over 300 of us, a number of tech startup and scale up founders within it. And actually, it's so important and powerful, particularly in times of strife that you have other founders who have probably been there and done it are probably going through the same thing and sometimes you just get so head down in just the the, the day-to-day that you forget that there are many other people going through it and actually that kind of just by talking about it it can make a huge difference in, in sharing ideas so thank, thank you for sharing and how you guys are kind of supporting your founders there are going to be people listening to this that are still bullish and are still determined to build the next unicorn and who will probably want to pitch to you at Kindred. So for anyone that might be uh, preparing that deck, what are you looking for right now? And what advice do you have for any founders um, that that might be up in front of you over the next few months?
0: Yeah, you might hear different things from different firms as well. So I think it's as much about finding like firm founder fit as anything. So don't take this as a a universal by any means. Kindred tends to invest in founders who are like scratching their own itch. You know, they have such a deep kind of insight layer, but also like the depth of motivation for why they are trying to solve that problem. You know, as I said, like even the foundation of Kindred, right, we had all had those experiences, good and bad, raising money for our companies and we were the customers of venture capital. And it's like, you want to bake that insight layer into, well, what's the venture firm that I would have wanted to take money from? And if I had a magic wand, what would that look like for an experience for a founder and caring enough to do that for a few decades? So it tends not to be the opportunistic founder who sees you know a high margin potential in a company that's or in a space that's like unexploited, but is sort of learning about that space for the first time. Or there are people who just want to be a founder and they don't know what they care about working on yet. And I think there are accelerators and programs and things that like help those people find ideas and find other co-founders that they might do things with. And it just tends to be a lot less like the archetype that we invest in for right or wrong. Great companies have been built that way. So, like Gaia, because I've mentioned them before, you know, the founder of the business, him and his wife went through four failed cycles of IVF and we're trying to make this like really difficult decision around do they go for a fifth cycle? And you know, he was a quant by training and background. He'd been at Goldman for almost a decade. And He was like, well, let's figure out what our personalized individual probability of success is if we go for a fifth cycle. Obviously, he asked all the experts and no one could tell him, right? It was very generic. So he basically spent two years building this like computational model and like this personalized, you know, ML driven model to be able to understand personalized risk. And they have a son and are, you know, I think just have a happy ending to their story. But equally, his insight was, if I predict probability of success, I can price risk. And I can make this something because it's been so life changing for me. I can make this something that's available to other people, you know, many of whom can't afford it without a safety net. And so like, he's going to die trying to solve this problem. You know, like when things get hard, like that depth of motivation is so, so, so deep and so profound. So first for us, start with something that you just are really passionate about that you don't have to do a lot of customer research in. maybe because you are the customer and you really understand that mindset. And we love those kinds of companies. And then in terms of the type of founder, it's really hard, right? Because it's this Venn diagram overlap that's almost like in total conflict. So on one side, you have to be rational, right? Like you've got to be rational enough to like run a company and and hire people and raise money and deploy it successfully. And in these tough times, be prudent about allocation. And, but you also have to be irrational. You know, you've, you've got to have this irrational hubris in our opinion, because on the road to building a multi-billion dollar company, you're going to get like a $50 million acquisition offer, which pays you like, 10 million for your two years of work. And then you're going to get like a $250 million offer. And like, you're, you're going to have to say no. It's a kind of founder that's like, thank you, Google, but like, I'll come back and buy you one day. Like, that is a crazy thing to say. And you kind of need someone to believe at some level and at some mm-hmm. depth in their core that they are capable of that. And that's kind of irrational. So... I think we're looking for the hubris, but with enough rationality to run a business. And it's hard, but when you find it, it's pretty magical. So that's what we're looking for.
1: Yeah. And I, I've I've met a fair few founders in your portfolio. Dan at Fairwell kindly introduced us and he's one of those sorts of people, just big ambitions, super smart, you know, so engaging. So yeah, I think I know the types that you're talking about.
0: I'm totally obsessed. Totally yes, obsessed. Yes, totally
1: obsessed. Like beyond I've never yeah.
0: met anyone.
1: I know. And it's a niche one, but such a huge market. And I think that's the the brilliance of someone like Dan and some of the entrepreneurs I've had the pleasure of meeting. It's just they just see things that are there, but no one else sees. And then they just go for it. And there's something so awe inspiring about it that, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of his. You have a big job. You run a fund. You are there for founders when they need you most. You have your team at Kindred, you know, who are are brilliant at what they do and, and you support them. And on top of that, you have a young family at home. So I I don't know how you do it. But as a parent myself, I I know firsthand how much I've learned from that experience and how it's made me a better, probably more vulnerable leader. So I just wanted to ask you if if it's okay, just what have the biggest lessons been for you as uh, sort of being a mother has taught you? And do you have any advice for anyone that might be listening that's trying to juggle a big job, maybe a venture and and parenthood or or founder life and parenthood. How do you strike the balance between all these things?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that like I have absolutely no answers, so um you know, I think it's really hard, but it's it's such a blessing to say like I have many things in my life that I really love and I really want to be great at, and one of them is is being a mother, and one of them is being a venture investor, and that figuring out like wanting the twenty five hour day is is such a blessing, right? If you think about it the other way around, that, that's not where you want to be. So I think one is just like the gratitude for having the opportunity to do many things, but understanding that it's a juggling act and it's hard and there are no answers. The two things that I found that have been helpful, one is, I think my one of my greatest skills or strengths, I don't even know if I can call it that, but like the thing that got me really far in the first you know, 15 years of my career was like, I just like work harder than anyone else. You know, I, I don't think I'm like God's gift to you know, genius, but I would just outwork everyone. And I sort of had one tool in my arsenal. And then I had children and I have three kids under six, and my eldest has a very rare disease and, you know, is a huge undertaking to manage, like, you know, emotionally and and day to day. And I can no longer be that person that only uses that one tool. So I think I have had to learn like a completely different way of still generating value, which is, you know, basically about prioritization and saying, like, what is the kind of single thing or the three levers that I can pull that will deliver the most amount of value? And that's also been in like founder conversations and founder relationships, right? Like I was always the one who would, you know, pride myself on taking the 11pm call on a Sunday. And I you start to do that with like a wider and wider portfolio. And I remember speaking to my coach, we really believe in coaching at Kindred and that's why we pay for it for founders. But we also use a coach ourselves. I always like to say, you know, Federer and Serena Williams and all those people have coaches. So like, of course we should too, right? And I what was really helpful is my coach saying to me at some point, like, next time someone calls you five times a day. You know, you should actually be asking the question instead of like feeling good that you are needed and that you are providing value and they wouldn't be calling you unless they respected your opinion and all those things. That's the feedback loop, right? You should be thinking like, who are they not calling when they're calling me, right? What COO do they not have in their company? Or I'm robbing them of the ability to build a really deep relationship with someone who's in this business 24 hours a day. And so I think when I framed it that way, it felt actually less like I was taking something from them and more like I was giving something to them of saying like, hey, let's figure out if it's constantly about sort of strategic questions, like who do you have internally that can be your sounding board? And how can I help you find that person? So it's like finding ways to scale yourself and get leverage and do it in the spirit of service, you know, to those people that you work with. And then the second thing I stole from my partner, Mark, who is like, you know, a fountain of wisdom. And he basically kind of created this concept of the word generative, of things being generative. So there will always be meetings that you take where you give like a huge amount of yourself, you know, your intellectual you know, energy and emotional energy. And, but you actually come out of those conversations more energized than you came in. Like it generated something, that person's energy and your energy. and And so it generated more energy, more capacity, more, you know, ability. And then there's the meetings where you give like very little of yourself and you come out and you're absolutely exhausted and you're really drained. And so it's kind of, look at your calendar and figure out like who are those people or what are those environments or what are those constructs in which like the meetings are generative because that actually is a way you get a 25-hour day you know it it, it does generate more for you outside of the meeting so those are the two things but it is hard and
1: this has been a generative conversation for me the last thing you want is mood hoovers and and you are absolutely not that and i can totally agree it's so important to sort of surround yourself with people that give you energy and I think that's why I love what I do because I used to get the Sunday night blues and now I'm just kind of bouncing out of bed to get to work and like, you know, talk to people. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. We are sadly at our wrap up questions later. So in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Kindred?
0: I hope Kindred is like the best, not the biggest kind of thing. Like I want us to always be a small firm, in the sense that we have, we we focus on pre-seed and seed when we first get involved with companies, and we become their partners, so we don't compete for the next rounds and all that. Like, but I, I want us to prove out that this model generates much much greater returns than, you know, practicing it in another way, and that's all ahead of us, right? We're still early days, so
1: that's what I want to prove. Exciting, thank you. Uh, very similar to JBM. too. at the end of your career, what would you like to be remembered for?
0: I mean, I think it's career and life. I just want to be remembered for my relationships, basically. My generosity of, of you know, spirit and the way in which you show up for others. So hopefully life and work are both aligned in that.
1: That's a great one. And probably unsurprisingly, uh, this is fortunate Mentor. Do you have a mentor? I know you have a coach. And if you could be mentored by one person dead or alive, who would that be and why?
0: So I do have someone, I think he would... He would turn very red if he heard me call him my mentor, because I don't think he necessarily thinks of himself that way. But he's a guy named Omid Kordestani. He was you know, in the first 10 hires at Google. He was their chief business officer for a while. He was executive chairman at Twitter. Like He's had this just incredible career. He is the kindest, most generous person I have met in or outside of business. And... I think, you know, sometimes you see that those things are in conflict. It's like the thing I'm trying to prove in my career is that they're not like, I think, you know, you can be really generous and really open and really kind and you can generate the most shit hot returns or have the most extraordinary career. And it doesn't mean you're soft and it doesn't mean that you let one get by the goalie and you hold people to very, very high standards, which he does, but you do it with a sense of deep devotion, which he also really does. So yeah, I think just the fact that someone like him exists is sort of inspiration enough. And then I'm lucky to have a close relationship with him. And yeah, I think he just always makes me better.
1: Amazing. And is there somebody that you'd love to be your mentor that, that might be dead or alive that you'd add to that list? I
0: think I have him. I mean, that's who I just said. I, I think
1: he does sound pretty special. So <laughs> amazing. Pretty awesome. And, uh, and finally, what last piece of advice, career or life advice would you like to leave our listeners with?
0: I think it's, you know, not to focus on what you can't do but focus on what you can do. I think we tend to be like the sort of type A overachievers, very 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 self-critical. And ultimately, like everyone will have strengths and weaknesses, but your strengths are what make you great. You know, your weakness there will always be someone to your left or right who can do it that little bit better, but everyone has something I think really unique about them. And recognizing that as early in your career as you can. And then just leaning into it and yeah, letting that shine. And I think fundamentally, we would create a lot more value. We'd create a lot better world and certainly a lot better mental health if people would kind of tap into that aspect of themselves and and, and let that shine.
1: I couldn't agree more. That's a wonderful place to end this conversation, Leila. Thank you for an uplifting, insightful and really inspiring chat uh, and for sharing your 40 minutes of mentorship. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I could have chatted to Layla for hours. She's so passionate about what she does, and I have so much admiration for what she and the Kindred team are building. Layla shared some really fascinating insights and great mentorship throughout that episode. But the one thing that stood out most to me in our chat was the way that Kindred worked with founders, particularly due to their equitable venture concept, but also down to Layla's belief in peer-to-peer mentorship and the power of coaching, something that I'm a big believer in. It's not surprising to me that Layla is so highly regarded by founders. She's the sort of investor I'd want on my cap table and at the end of the phone when things go wrong. So whether you're somebody looking to pivot into VC or you're building a startup and looking for a really supportive investor, I'd definitely urge you to check out Kindred Capital. And that's a wrap for our first episode of this VC feature series. I really hope you enjoyed it and you'll tune back in next Wednesday when I'm joined by another world-class VC partner. See you then and take care.